cold silence that we don't dare speak. There's a wall between us and a river so deep. We keep pretending that there's nothing wrong. There's a code of silence and it can't go on. Hi folks, I am Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 5th of January 2009. And my God, does the time fly, doesn't it? Just getting used to saying 2008 and here you are, 2009. For the newcomers to the show, I always advise you to go into cuttingthroughthematrix.com where you can download hundreds of hours of talks they've given for free and you can, you can get lots of research material from these talks to help to put the big picture together for you and it truly is a complex picture because we're covering such vast time periods, ages in fact, of how humanity has been controlled in different eras and I try to show you through all the scientific associations which are combined today, we're being driven into a new scientifically controlled society where experts will rule and basically decide who will be born uh, eventually and even then no one will get born without having various genes removed and other ones inserted to create a standardized compliance society so look into the cuttingthroughmatrix.com website and go through the talks at your leisure also look into alanwattsentinel.eu where you can get written transcripts of these talks you can download them and they're written in the various languages of Europe that's the hardest part, I guess, is trying to make sense of your own lifetime. It's, it's tough enough going over history, which is always being rewritten. And in our own age, this age we're in now, so much history is going down the memory hole, as George Orwell called it in 1984. Because we're not supposed to know how people were managed in the past and how the big, big cons were pulled on people by those in power that's so they can always pull the same cons again if we don't know they'll do it again and again and they do the same cons every generation now because the generations are split up you don't have grandmothers and great-grandmothers and, and fathers living with families or even in touch with families anymore so they don't pass on this information to the young therefore the same scams can be pulled over and over and we fall for them it's like Plato said Basically, Plato was saying that everything is a formula. If you want the public to behave or react or direct them in a certain uh, direction, you simply use formula. That formula, which has been used before, will work again if implemented in the same sequence as before. And there are sciences to do with this which are not taught to the general population. We find that Bernays and other people, I'm sure, were taught them by very secretive the societies where archives are kept, archives of histories, not only of, of one or two countries, but pretty well of all the major countries and empires down through the ages, they use these techniques to their advantage to help mold the future. And the future which is being molded today is, especially this century, is called the age of transition. That's change. Change is everywhere. That's the, the name of it, change and transition. 
I'm always a bit weary of anything with transition in it because even the ones that seem to be opposing this are often often have their leaders supplied. And, and even some of the documentaries I've mentioned, you have to be very careful because you'll find the same champions of supposedly freedoms on, this, on, on every different one. They're, they're, they're taken as the specialists, uh, even in Britain. So we're very, very careful about these, these documentaries because when you, you find when you oppose them head on, you're, you're simply working in the dialectic and you can't win using their technique. You're on your chessboard. I'll be back with more after this break. and their families 
lived an equivalent lifestyle to any high bureaucrat in the Western world. Same kind of income, they had access to all the luxuries of the West. They also had the dash house in the country where they'd go and be, they could relax with servants attending them, just like nobility in Europe. So this is the system they're bringing in, and they've already decided a long time ago they would not need so many people using up the world's resources, as they say, because the intelligentsia also decided at meetings, and they had world meetings back in the 1800s about this, and even uh, going to the, the founding of the Fabian Society, and you'll find out that they, they didn't literally mean, they, they, though actually they did literally mean that they were going to hammer the world into shape on an anvil, the, the proper shape, the way it should be, according to them. And they've been he- heavily at work ever since doing so. Big, big money came into the Fabian society. Big money. The Astors came over to Britain and became Lord and Lady Astor. And they funded it too. And the, the money that they had in those days, many millions of dollars, is, would make them billionaires many, a few times over today. And it's never explained why there was an, an interest of these very wealthy people who obviously didn't get their money by playing fair. No one does. Who wanted to come over and supposedly help the working classes. Well, it had nothing to do with helping the working classes. It was, again, a scientific agenda. There was too much poverty, therefore you had to get rid of the poor. Meanwhile, the Fabian Society became the champion of labor or the left wing, which is just um, the same thing as liberal in other countries. It's all deception. You have one hand, basically, uh, one body using one hand on one side and it's using its other hand on the other. That's the dialectic that we get caught up in and most people never get out of. They pick sides. And so many studies have been done on this. Now, how people pick sides is unbelievable. I can remember reading years ago when they talked about the coming information wars and how Internet especially would would give access to so many people to to start to, to disintegrate the planned society, the one that was already planned to go ahead, and how they'd combat that. And they had studies done on how groups are formed even in cyberspace before they gave us cyberspace, because this work had all been, already been done by Marshall McLuhan, Professor Marshall McLuhan, and others into how we perceive things. And McLuhan himself said that an age was coming back in the 60s. An age would come, and it already was there to one extent through telephone itself, where you're talking to people all across the world that you never see. You are, in a sense, a a voice with the body left behind in some kind of electronic space just floating around talking to other voices. And he predicted that this would become more and more real for people as the the unattached voices become more real than the people living next to them. Well, this is actually happening in our lifetime. And again, those big, powerful organizations moved into this whole sphere because that was their territory, how to control the mind through altering perception. I said before, if you fight them, 
the way that you normally fight them, you're done for because they've already worked out by, they call it neuroscience. It's a neuroscience technique of how groups are formed, how friendships are formed over the Internet, in fact. And from the very beginning, going back to that article I read years ago on the coming information wars where they said they'd insert Trojan horses right in to, to chat rooms and so on, who'd be trained to have maybe five different identities. And none of the other people would know that one person had five identities. They'd think it was, that this was all different people. And this one would stir up, when, when a, a group started to get power, or at least get information shared amongst them, and a common agenda linked up, this person would then start to grumble uh, and say, so-and-so said this about you. Then you'd email it back, this other person, not knowing it's the same person, taking five different names. And they're trained to do this, and they're all over the place. That's why I never go into forums. You can't. You can't do it. So everything that happens in our lifetime is planned before we're given the vehicles for making it even happen. There's an article, it's, it's from Trends in Cognitive Sciences, Volume 9, number 1, January 2005. It's well worth looking into by Martha J. Farah from the Center for Cognitive Neuroscience, University of Pennsylvania, Philadelphia. And it goes into the introduction. You scroll down the page. It says, almost three decades ago in the picturesque coastal retreat of Asilomar, California, a group of molecular biologists gathered to discuss the safety of the newly developed recombinant DNA technology in the years since, concern about the risks of genetic engineering have remained prominent in the public consciousness, as well as commanding the attention of academic bioethicists, and, and that's eugenicists, basically, government regulators and biologists themselves. At the start of the 21st century, neuroscience has developed to a point where it, too, may have profound effects on society extending far beyond the research laboratory or medical clinic. Like the field of genetics, neuroscience concerns the biological foundations of who we are, of our essence. The relation of the self to brain is, if anything, more direct than that of self to genome. Perhaps more important, neural, neural inventions are generally more easily accomplished than genetic interventions. It internal recently there's been little awareness of the ethical issues arising from neuroscience. Now, uh, maybe a few weeks ago, I read an article from a professor in Holland on the subject too. It's, it's really way ahead in its, in its workings and its use upon the people. But he was discussing uh, how this could be used, the science can be used to literally manipulate everyone's mind on any topic very easily. But getting back to this article... It says, neuroethics encompasses a large and varied set of issues and initial discussions focused on various different subsets of those issues. And it goes on to say here, uh, where is it now for individual? Oh, yeah. Neuroethics encompasses a large set of various set of, of issues. Some neuroethical issues concern the practical implications of neurotechnology 
for individuals and society. Technological progress is making it possible to monitor and manipulate the human mind with ever more precision through a variety of neuroimaging methods and interventions. For the first time, it may be possible to breach the privacy of the human mind and judge people not only by their actions, but also by their, it says here, thoughts and predilections. Understand, on the Internet, and I've read articles about this from the military themselves, where they have a duplicate of every one of us in a virtual world with all our habits, traits, etc., and they get all the information from us voluntarily via the Internet. Back after these messages with more. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix, reading an article about neuroscience and this science is so far ahead, it's, it's astonishing how, how far ahead they have gone with, with the various technologies involved. Before, they used to have just simple observation of people and lots of tricks to observe them too, and I've read books from the 50s on advertising. I've read them on the air, some of them, on how they used to study people to see how they shop and, and to see if, they, if, if certain colors or way things are packaged would make people buy certain things and impulse buy and so on. We've always been studied for this, but this is way beyond this. It's, it's right down to trying to break down you as a personality in order to control you, to to manipulate you in such a way that you won't even know that the ideas or thoughts in your head are not your own. I've talked about articles before where the technology of direct voice to skull is now used in advertising in New York. At least, I don't know where else it's used. But uh, that was in all major newspapers. And these are intrusive technologies because who has the right to come right inside your skull and advise you to vote for someone or go and buy something in a store that's nearby. That's intrusive. And don't forget, that, and don't ever believe for a minute that those in the Pentagon and those who control the minds of people are, and who are really in, interested in how to control people like the CIA don't think they haven't gone way beyond that. Of course they have. In fact, over the weekend, I was looking at an article about some Google videos, in fact, from major TV companies back in the 60s and 70s uh, doing exposés on even the old MK Ultra that was going on at the time. It went beyond using psychiatric hospitals and LSD and shock treatment. They were hiring the CIA, was running prostitutes across the country uh, with TV cameras in the rooms. And the whole idea was to get the Johns on uh, taking various drugs and then observing their effects on them. At least that's what they told the public. And we still don't have access to all the kinds of drugs they were testing on these characters or what happened to these people. I've always said you don't have to worry about the guys over there, whoever they are, but they have to be. You worry about the guys in your own country, at the top, in the big secret societies, the kind that's called MI6 and CIA and Mossad. These are the guys you worry about. Because they use everyone as a guinea pig. 
And it could be you, me, or, or anyone else. And thousands of us. The idea being to control millions of us. But getting back to this article here on neuroscience. It says here, neuroscience is providing us with increased, increasingly comprehensive explanations of human behavior in purely material terms. Although the field of neuroethics is young and still evolving rapidly, the time seems ripe for a review in which the key issues of neuroethics, both practical and philosophical, are surveyed and placed in relation to one another. And remember, the CIA will be funding a lot of these programs in the universities, as they always have done before. Brain imaging and brain privacy. Among the neurosciences, technologies that present new ethical challenges of a practical nature is functional brain imaging. This includes the familiar false color images of positron emission tomography and functional magnetic resonance imaging, as well as the electroencephalography-derived methods of event-related potentials and the magnetoencephalography and optical imaging methods such as near-infrared spectroscopy. These methods vary in their invasiveness and portability, which constrain the uses to which they can be put, although any one of them can be used to obtain personal information surreptitiously in a study ostensibly designed for a different purpose. In principle, and increasingly in practice, imaging can be used to infer people's psychological states and, tra and traits. For example, in neuromarketing, brain imaging is used to measure limbic system response to a product that may indicate consumers' desire for it. Do you know in the supermarkets they have tiny, tiny little fisheye cameras along shelves? They've had them since the 60s. And they pick up the pupil, how it dilates or constricts when it sees a certain product. Now that data is fed back into banks. We're all guinea pigs, you see. Says here, in one recent demonstration, brain activity related to soft drink preference was sensitive to both the taste of the drink and to the brand name. Then you've got about Coke and Pepsi. To the extent that neuroimaging can measure unconscious motivation to buy, it provides a valuable new kind of information for marketers. Another potential use for, for functioning imaging of brain states is lie detection. Although FMRI-based lie detection is far from feasible in real-world situations, well, they're actually working on that now, as you know. Remote lie detection outfits are starting to put them in, in the airports and everything. The sectors have found correlates of deception in the laboratory. ERPs come closer to providing actual brain-based lie detection. They've been used to identify guilty knowledge by distinguishing responses to items that are generally known to be associated with a crime and items only the perpetrator would know are associated with it. An example is shown in figure one. But anyway, they call it brain fingerprinting. But they also go into, of course, sex and everything else and pleasant stimuli. Where did they all, all this information on pleasant stimuli? Well, they got it from testing on prisoners, uh, sexual perverts in, 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 in prison and showing all these photographs and wiring them up. That's where they got all this data. We'll be back with more after this break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth.
I'm Alan Watt. We're cutting through the matrix. I'm trying to, with a limited, limited information that's available to any of us at the bottom here, piece things together. But I was thinking over the weekend, too, about an article I read recently of how in Japan they'd tapped in. And I've said this a long time ago, this would be able to be done. They've tapped in to the signals coming from a person's eyes to the, the, the back of their brain, to the visual cortex. And now they can actually see what the person's seeing, at least writing. They can actually write things down and, and see it on a computer. And I'm sure that's been done. This has been done at the bottom. I'm sure it's been done at the top long ago. In fact, when Nick Biggage first showed those art, those devices on the Wendy Mesley show in Canada on television that the CIA had used in the 1950s, they could put thoughts in your head. Now, if they could put thoughts in your head, why couldn't they be able to read your thoughts as well to an extent? If everything is electromagnetic currents and so on, electrochemical currents giving off signals, I'm sure they're so far ahead in all of this area from all of your senses, they can pretty well decode them all and have a, an idea of what's going on. And I'm sure that information is kept the very, very hush-hush secret systems way above even the CIA because their bosses would never give them the same kind of weaponry they have. You can believe that. Science is always, at least as far as I can see, held in three categories for all of the sciences. That's the ones at the bottom that do research. The ones in the middle, like the CIA and some of the higher special forces that get higher technology to use, and then the bosses above them, they have the stuff that's even way ahead of that. We're given obsolete stuff at the bottom. But all of this and technology is well-funded, remember. Scientists in, in universities, too, get grants to do research, but they're told what to do it on. And it's always of use to those in power. That's what everything is about. It's about power and control. And therefore, they, so they fund particular programs that they're really interested in. And naturally, this is a field they fund heavily using our tax money because the future they have designed for us is to be a totally surveyed society, surveilled society, a society where there is no privacy and, and a population that doesn't mind that. And we have a generation growing up now who think it's quite natural to give out all your data to anyone who asks for it, uh, even people on the Internet and websites and so on. They put all their data there. They think privacy is of no value. They have no idea that wars were fought in the past to, to get some privacy. If you go back not so long ago, not so long ago, and the European countries, the king's men could smash your doors down at any time, haul you off the land, kick you off, and there was no, no court in the land would listen to your, your problems. It was just the king's law. He would steal anything from you he wished to do. That They're back at that stage now. Government's acting exactly as the old kings do. And the police can actually confiscate your property and share the loot amongst themselves because they copied the Soviet system, and that's what that was based on. Nothing really changes, except that the sciences they're using can fool us into the fact that we're into a nice, cozy society 
and the sheep don't notice that the wolf has big fangs anymore. He's well camouflaged. He wears a suit and tie and looks rather nice. Or he might talk about wildlife programs on the television for you. Shows you that he loves animals and nature as he brainwashes you that you're just another animal. That's how the sciences are being used. So whatever is, is published to the public is fascinating enough to know what they're doing at the bottom level. But you always keep in mind that what they're rediscovering at the bottom has been done at the top a long time ago and how far ahead they truly are. And it's all, to say, to do with power. Power is the name of the game and the continuity of power. The elite, down through the ages, have never voluntarily given up any power to anybody. This whole farce of democracy was their scam to make us work along with it probably got us to the stage we're at now where most folk don't really care much about democracy. In fact, it's, it's become such a vague term. We don't know what it is anymore. It's pretty sad because we're, we're truly, truly being used not just like guinea pigs. They're beyond the guinea pig stage. We are the subjects now, not just the test subjects. They're using techniques on us. And this is the technotronic warfare the big boys like Brzezinski talked about in his book, Between Two Ages. Here's an article from CNN.com on the technology page. And it says here, Tel Aviv, Israel. Keep your shoes and belts on waiting in long airport security lines to pass through metal detectors may soon be a thing of the past. You know, Israel has pretty well all all the patents and all the security equipment. Most of the security equipment in Britain and all through the big cities in England are owned by Israeli companies. I was watching a series to do with the bombings in London, an amazing series that some guy put together. It's called 7-7 uh, Ripple Effect. It's a seven-set series. And this guy will take you painstakingly through all the inconsistencies of what the government's told the public when he looks up the actual facts and matches them together. But in that documentary, he goes into the companies who own all the cameras, the fact being that in all the sites where the bombing practices were to take place, there had to be the real bombings, which means that it was all said to be real bombings in the first place. The cameras just happened to be out of action that day, but it was Israeli companies that owned them. So here we are again, Tel Aviv, Israel, talking about airport lines. Security experts say focus is shifting from analyzing the content of carry-ons to analyzing the contents of passengers' intentions and emotions. We're seeing a needed paradigm shift when it comes to security, says Omer Laviv, CEO of Athena GS3, an Israeli-based security company. This brain fingerprinting is right into that neuroscience, you see or technology which checks for behavior and intent is much more developed than we think. Nowhere is the need for the cutting-edge security more acute than Israel, which faces the constant security threats. For this reason, Israel has become a leader in developing security technology. Several Israeli-based technological companies are developing detection systems that pick up signs of emotional strain, a psychological red flag that a passenger may intend to commit an act of terror, 
speedier and less intrusive than metal detectors, these systems may eventually restore some efficiency to the airplane boarding process. They'll sell you any schmuck, you see, a schmuck, you should say, to, 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 for, for a profit. Because these things can stop someone that's anxious. Most folk who go into for a flight are anxious. And tranquilizers will overcome that. And even if you're a real terrorist, the tranquilizers would overcome that too. They're doing more than that. They're also flashing up certain words in different languages on a screen, subliminally, to see how you react to it and scan your brain as you watch. You don't even know what's happening because they put them into ads and these different ads they have on the sides in airports. That's all intrusive and it's also deceitful. Completely deceptive. They even have stuff built in to the chairs you sit on to see how your body's reacting to stress and so on. It's pretty, pretty disgusting what's really going on. But this is neuroscience and they're using gadgets now that can basically pick up your senses from a good distance. And it's at a stage now where the police and police cars will soon be equipped to see if you're driving under stress. That'll be the next thing. This is the kind of society that's being brought in. Totally surveilled society. We have, we have children now who are watching nothing but reality shows. And they see all these youngsters, they think about the same age as themselves, that are just like them with cameras, and they all want to be on TV. So they, they buy, have I ever wondered why these little, iPod, these little cameras for your computer are so cheap? They're the cheapest part of everything, or anything. Because they want everyone to buy them and put them in all their rooms so that their little world is on view to the whole world. And people are falling for this, especially the young. It's amazing what's really happening. And it's all by design. There's never been a power elite in history had so much. I mean, really, they're they're just slapping themselves all over with glee at getting society trained to open their lives up to them to watch and see. It's never happened in history before. And they don't have to force them to do it. It's all done by neuroscientific persuasion and propaganda and repetition and the need for youngsters to belong to their peer group. To belong is very, very important to young people. Every tyrant in history knows that. Hitler had the Hitler Youth. They had the young communists in the Soviet Union and elsewhere. They always use the youth. They want to belong to something that gives them meaning. And that's why, too, they had an attack on the family. The same organizations that's running the world today said that it had destroyed the, fa- the family. Then they can go straight for the mind of the youth. Those who were older were contaminated with their thoughts, their modes of behavior, their morality was obsolete and a hindrance to progress because they knew what progress was. They had all in mind what they wanted to progress to so that to eradicate all that was. And they've done a darn good job of it. And our school and education under UNESCO has stepped in. And they're using UNESCO's mental health program to, to test every single child, child on the planet to see if they're mentally 
healthy enough to come into this new society? And if not, what needs to be rectified about them? Remember Julian Huxley was the first CEO of UNESCO and he was the brother of Aldo Huxley, who was the grandson of Sir Thomas Huxley. And Sir Thomas Huxley was the best friend of Charles Darwin. And socialism and behaviorism all tie in together with the Fabian society. All works together along the same path. The new man. One of the founders of the Fabian Society, George Bernard Shaw, a guy with a strange history himself, because a lot of these characters are always brought up with a mother but no father. It's the mother that gives the indoctrination because the mother belongs to certain societies. That's why they give him this indoctrination. But George Bernard Shaw, Shaw wrote Man and Superman, and he was a, a founder of the Fabian Society. H.G. Wells hardly ever saw his father. He was a kind of alcoholic, uh, lower middle class character who always, he, whose professional job was, was being a, an extra batter at cricket. So he toured playing cricket and getting paid for it like a hired hand. Something that Wells was ashamed of because he hated the working class. And he was terrified of the working class, in fact. These are the sort of characters that were picked, people with big chips on their shoulder picked by the very, very wealthy, like the Astor family, to do all the leg work and all the typing work and all the speeches. And then you had the Webbs as well, Beatrice and Sidney Webb, who laid out all the rules and the groundwork and did all the bureaucratic write-ups. Very boring people. And it's, but yet that's the system they created that we're living in today. And that's what all bureaucracy is fashioned after the methodology of Sydney and Beatrice Webb. They say, shortly there'll be nowhere to hide. The last refuge used to be your, your mind, inside your own mind. And short of walking about with a lead helmet on, uh, that's rapidly disappearing. And they won't be happy. They will not be happy until they are into your brain. And even then, once when they're into the, your brain, because you, you can still make decisions, it's not good enough that you control your brain. They want to put a chip in there eventually and control it for you. Then they'll feel safe because any decision that you make will be a decision that they're programmed into you. But you, you can see where this all must go. And what I'm talking about has been discussed at big, big, powerful meetings. The people at the top are very paranoid, terrified as well, that enough people can come out with, with the facts and, and shout quite loudly that the king has no clothes. But all this farce about terrorism and so on, and the sky is falling and global warming and incoming comets or whatever the heck it happens to be, is all bogus to get us on the road to stampede and then they can lead us into this brave new world. That's what it's all about. Nothing, nothing less than that. And I was listening to Rumsfeld one day when he was talking about a, a strange bunch of terms he was using. He says, we know all about the knowns. Then there are the unknowns that we know nothing about. 
and we know that we know nothing about the unknowns. I mean, on and on and on. And this comes from, from documents in the Pentagon where their big intelligence teams are looking at every possible, every possible thing that gets churned out of computers on disasters. There's hundreds of them. It's like getting up in the morning and say, what could go wrong today? And you tie your shoelaces and you tie them together and you fall on your face. Anything that could possibly happen and go wrong is part of the scenario. And they're trying to cover every possible day. It's, imp- it's incredible. It's madness. It's utter madness at that level. But I always think back to Matsu Tung, who said he wasn't afraid of armies. He was afraid of someone with a, an original idea. Someone that could spread that original idea. Because you see, that's how communism spread in the first place. That's how socialism spread from an idea, from an individual. And those in power grabbed a hold of that idea because they could use that technique to control the people. Always be careful of the groups that you join. Because even if you start off with the best of intentions, people will infiltrate. It will be very helpful to you. In fact, there was a book, it was, it was, it was a handbook for that which is being used today. It was called You Can Trust the Communists. If you can get a hold of it, read it through. Because it gives you the various strategies that are in use today. Where someone will come in and be the greatest secretary to your, to your little club that you've ever had. Before you know it, she'll work to the top. The next meeting, she'll get voted in as the head, and then she's off in a different direction. I'll be back with more after this break. Hi, folks. I'm Alan Watt, and this is Cutting Through the Matrix. I'm doing a bit of a rant tonight over different topics, but they're all connected. Because mm, the future doesn't just happen by itself. The present didn't come about by a bunch of separate incidents just coalescing together. It was planned this way. In fact, the Fabian Society was named after the emperor who used certain delaying tactics over long terms to get his objective resolved. And I've just got time here to, to mention a few of the Fabian members of the Fabian Society from their own website past and present were Clement Attlee UK Prime Minister 45-51 Ed Balls British MP Tony Benn the Benn family has been in this forever Radical Left Labour MP Annie Besant remember Theosophist it says here Theosophist and Social Activist mind her she had a Lord Besant was her, her father mind you gave her a hand Tony Blair Tony Blair UK Prime Minister 97 to 2007 David Blunkett, Home Secretary for the UK, 2001-04. Gordon Brown, the present one, UK Prime Minister. There's a whole list of them, a whole list of people, going down and down and down forever almost, and that's not them all. That's just some of the, the better-known ones. H.G. Wells and all these guys, of course, are in there too. So, and Ramsay MacDonald, who was the Head of State, First Labour Prime Minister of the UK, High Freemason, High Socialist, and picked an odd name, Ramsey. It took back into history to find out who was the first Ramsey that gave Ramsey's rant. Interesting stuff. But it's all connected together. 
And it's not happenstance at all. What's always amazed me, though, is how people can become so incredibly stuck on the groups that they become into. And they never change their mind. The, you see, when we grow up, and we're always growing up, until you die, you start to get something and you kick the bucket. That's just sadness about living. These guys never change. It's as though they stuck with their views at 18 and didn't learn anything from then on. And they're very adamant in their activism and the way they see things. That's an odd thing to happen because you're supposed to mature. You have milestones throughout your life. As you acquire more knowledge and more wisdom about yourself and society. But these guys don't. They're stuck there. They're, they're lives long. It's always astonished me. And these characters, especially in, in, in societies like the Fabian Society, are hard line, very hard line in their views and opinions. So when Tony Blair backed the U.S. for this war on terror, you can bet your bottom dollar that the, that the whole thing was planned between higher powers on both sides of Atlantic before 9-11 went off. And we know that for a fact. And you have to say, well, these are very radical groups. Here's Tony Blair with the Fabian Society aligned with a guy and a bunch of guys from the Skull and Bone Society. And it starts coming together because the Fabian Society, although it championed supposedly labor, at least it, had, it was known for that. That was never its intent. It was to lead the world into a brand new scientifically controlled society where intellectuals would take their rightful place. You can go back to the writings of Jefferson, and he said the world would be run by the natural nobility. The natural nobility. That's what he meant by that. And Jefferson was a member of those very high societies, too. Well, that's it for tonight, folks. Sorry I couldn't take callers, so please call in again. From Hamish, myself, and Ontario, Canada, it's good night, and may your God or your gods go with you.